My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Jesse Graham, professor of business ethics at the University of Utah, typifies underappreciated, or at least understated. He's most well-known for his work with Jonathan Haidt in developing moral foundations theory, which I discuss in Season 1, Episode 20 of this podcast. Their theory provides the best explanation I've ever heard for why people disagree so much about politics, and why everyone thinks they're right. But if you look up Jesse Graham on his university's website, you won't find a self-aggrandizing biography, but rather just a link to his CV. And given the lessons he shared today it's no surprise that he doesn't draw attention to himself. Jesse earned an undergraduate psychology degree from Chicago, a master's of theological studies from the Harvard Divinity School, and then a master's and PhD in psychology from the University of Virginia. I hope you enjoy learning from Jesse Graham, because I always do. Jesse, it's so great to catch up with you today. It's been too long, especially because we have a couple projects together that we have not made much progress on. (laughs) That's always the way. Yeah, I'd like to push forward on those again eventually, uh, but regardless, thanks for coming on today. Sure. I admire and respect you, Jesse, and I seem to always talk about your research on moral foundations, regardless of what class I'm teaching, whether I'm teaching organization behavior or ethics or negotiation or leadership. You've had Mm -hmm. such a wonderful career. And as you think back on your career, are there two to three simple, practical, underappreciated lessons you've learned that you'd most like to pass on to others? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. I I really love your podcast. And I, I love that it's short and to the point and and practical because I think a lot of times in the kinds of MBA leadership classes that you and I both teach, uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of like inspirational advice that's very lofty and, you know, business leadership books to things like lead from the heart, you know, and that's that's all great. But I feel like sometimes that's it's a little hard to know what to do with that kind of lofty inspirational message. So when you gave me my assignment, I tried to think, what's the least lofty lesson I could possibly impart to people? And so the first one I thought of was use Gmail calendar. And I know that sounds so stupid and so mundane, but I really think if it hadn't been for that, I would not have an academic career. So um, in in grad school, my, my wife and I both went to University of Virginia. Um, in the first three years uh, of my PhD program, like I think most PhD students, I was just kind of felt like I was barely keeping my head above water and, you know, tr- try, you know, reading so much stuff in all my classes and reading for research and trying to get a sense of the literature and trying to get research off the ground and, you know, kind of changing interests from moral development to moral politics. And so like, kind of barely keeping up with things. Um, but then uh, after the first three years, uh, my, my wife got her MFA and then she got uh, basically like a nine to five job uh, on campus. And so we commuted together to go to campus. And so then in my fourth year, all of a sudden, uh, instead of having the kind of loosey goosey grad student lifestyle where, you know, you can sleep late or write when you feel inspired, that kind of thing. I, I was just basically sitting at my desk from nine to five. And it was sort of like, oh, crap, what am I going to do with all this time? Like, I I know I have a bad tendency to, you know, just drift off and look at Facebook or look at, you know, the onion or whatever, you know, just kind of waste time. Um, and so then I started scheduling um, and, you know, I use Gmail. It doesn't have to be Gmail. I'm not being uh, sponsored by Google or anything. Uh, that's just what I happen to use. But, uh, you know, anything to organize yourself. But I just started filling in blocks of time thinking, OK, what are the things that I need to do and when can I do it? Um, and it, you know, it, t- it took a lot of work to figure out how long things actually take. I think I would have a tendency to think, 
okay, I'll give myself an hour this morning to write the first two paragraphs of the introduction. And then, you know, after a few weeks, I realized that's the kind of thing I need to block off three hours and I can't really write for three hours. So maybe I should, you know, block off an hour and a half to write one paragraph and then switch to something else or, you know, force myself to get up and walk around. But just, you know, kind of thinking of the the job of a grad student um, and a job as a, as a, you know, researcher as a nine to five job, I think was really, really helpful for me. Um, uh, and, and again, it's, you know, it was it, very like low level mundane kind of thing. Um, but those, those years, years four, five, and six of my grad program are the most productive that I've ever been. Um, and I think that's why I got a job and we, we had our first kid shortly after year six. So of course everything, you know, went to hell and I've never been as organized since, um, but, you know, I, I try to tell all, all my grad students, you know, do as I say, not as I do, you know, schedule schedule things and, and you'll be able to get a lot more done. And I think you can get a lot more high quality research done that way um, and writing. There's a great book, a really short book by Paul Sylvia called How to Write a Lot, where he just talks about the. I mean, he basically, you know, gave this lesson, um, just, you know, schedule your writing time, stick to that schedule no matter what treat it like teaching. He says, you know, like nobody finds time to teach. And so you shouldn't be finding time to write. You should just have that uh, set. And so that would be my first lesson, just very mundane, like how to get stuff done that I think was kind of crucial for having an academic career. And when you mentioned these years, four, five, and six, was that the time that you were doing a lot of this work on moral foundations with Jonathan Haidt? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I have been doing a lot of it beforehand. So, you know, like those first three years, I felt like I wasn't getting anything done, but then by years four and five, I kind of realized like, oh, I kind of know what I'm doing. And, you know, all those class projects I did are actually coming in handy. So, you know, like for one of my classes in maybe my second or third year, I started doing this text analysis project where I made a moral foundations dictionary. And that became like study four of my first, you know, paper that kind of helped get me a job. And so, you know, you kind of realize like, oh, I wasn't wasting time that whole time. It was just very disorganized. Um, and I think, you know, when I became more organized, you kind of realize like, oh yeah, I do know some stuff. Yeah, well, but again, it things. wasn't until fourth year that I felt that way. So when I think of the moral foundations, I always think of Graham and Height because that's the, you know, that was the citation I had to memorize for my qualifying exam. So it's <laughs> never been- uh, Most people would definitely think Height and Graham, but I appreciate it. No, 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 no. It's, it's, Graham and, it's Graham and Height for me. Uh, you know, I love this lesson though, because I didn't use a calendar until I got to law school and I don't know how I functioned <laughs> yeah. without it. And I like this idea from Stephen Covey, you know, you've got the two by two matrix of urgency and importance. And uh, oh, so yeah. often we end up spending time on, you know, the urgent or just the plain unimportant. And, and so the, the calendar helps us with our priorities. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the hard things about being a graduate student is that you still have the word student in your, in your job title at, at the time. And so I think, you know, for, for an academic career, I think that career starts your first year of the PhD program. And I think you should treat it like a nine to five job, even if you don't particularly work well, nine to five, just treat, you know, treat it like uh, a job and not the sort of student mode that you were in, in undergrad. Yeah. Okay, great. Any other uh, non-lofty? Uh, yeah. So this is, this is getting a little more lofty, but it's still pretty non-lofty. It's still pretty stupid and mundane. <laughs> it's, um, the second lesson is be a good collaborator. Um, I think collaborating with a lot of people has been pretty key to my career. Um, and this is another thing that, you know, when I was kind of starting to approach the job market in grad school, I was kicking myself because all my papers had so many people on them. You know, I was working with a ton of other grad students at UVA. I was working with, you know, five or six different faculty members there. 
I was working with people at other universities um, and I thought, gosh, I really need to have more like solo authored papers or, you know, papers where it's just me and one other person. Um, and I thought that that kind of made my CV look weak is that, all, you know, all my papers had so many people on them. Um, and one of my advisors, um, besides John Haidt, was Brian Nozick. And, and he was saying, no, no, look, I think this is where the field is headed. I think big science is the future of, of social sciences. You know, if you look at the hard sciences, you'll see papers with 70 people on them. And he said, you know, being being able to show that you can collaborate with a lot of people is actually a really good thing. Because when people are looking to hire you, they're looking for a, a good colleague and a good collaborator, not just a, a good researcher. So um you know, and and so then Brian did this really big project with over a hundred authors, I think, um, looking at you know estimating the reproducibility of psychological science, where you just had a whole bunch of people trying to replicate a bunch of psychology papers, um, and so that that has turned out to be my most cited paper. Um, and if you said I shouldn't count it in my citations, I would probably agree because I'm 54th author on that paper. But that's kind of you know that's like an extreme of the of the big science model, but. Um, ever since you know graduating, I've continued to collaborate with a lot of people, um, and the the collaborations I I've I've started I think have have been central to my career. Like I feel like I can't even have a coherent thought by myself. Like I think the the I the sort of ideal of you know the researcher genius who just sits in a study and thinks of brilliant ideas and and writes things that might apply to some people. It certainly doesn't apply to me. I I need other people to bounce ideas off of. Um, and it's also, it's, it's more fun. Like, I, I think the job would not be fun if you were just a solitary researcher working by yourself. Um, and so I think it, as part of being a good collaborator, I think some of the key things are to be non-arrogant. I think there's a lot of smart people in academia, but a lot of them are really arrogant. And, um, you know, if you're trying to like show that you're the big shot or show how, how busy you are, people just aren't going to want to work with you. Um, so I think being humble is pretty key. In most of the collaborations I'm a part of, I, I think I fill the role of comic relief. Um, but you know that that makes me a little bit more fun to work with. I think so. I think that's been kind of good for my career. Is just you know it's it's fun to work with people, and if people want to work with you, it's going to be good for your career in the long run. Yeah, oh, this is great. It, it reminds me of uh, Adam Galinsky. I talked to him recently, mm -hmm. and he says that he has two hundred more than two hundred papers, and not a single solo authored paper. Uh, well, that's and great. This idea of collaborating, you know, it, it applies in every area of life. And, and one thing I've learned in this job is anytime I write th something, uh, at first it used to surprise me how often other people would just dramatically improve whatever I had written. Because, you know, like in order to get to this job, you have to be a decent writer and our verbal skills and our writing skills tend to already be pretty solid. Uh, yeah, yeah. But but now it's just I know no matter how much time I've spent on something and no matter, no matter how much time. I've spent simplifying and, and trying to write clearly. Everybody that I send it to will always improve it dramatically. Uh, and and you know, again, I just think this applies in all areas of life. It's it's important to be a good collaborator. I think you've given some good tips for how to do that. Any other final lessons you'd like to? Yeah. Uh, so the last lesson is getting dangerously lofty, and it's and it's related to my research. Um, but the last lesson I thought of was uh, question your convictions. And so I think we have a tendency to think that our moral values, our moral convictions, you know, our deepest convictions um, are sort of our bedrock, they're the most important things about us. Um, but after, I guess, 15 or so years of studying human morality, I really think there are a lot of dangers to our moral nature. Um, I think our, our moral sense, our moral senses have, have evolved over time. I think they've really helped us to 
you know, live in cooperative societies. I think they've helped humanity to thrive, but I think there's a lot of dangers to them. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's obviously pros to our moral judgments and our moral feelings, you know, like, I think compassion can be a good thing. I think loyalty can be a good thing. Um, but I think there's a lot of dangers associated with with any of these kind of moral convictions. Um, and so at the at the highest level, you know, you think of like intractable international conflicts like Israel versus Palestine. There's so many, you know, feelings of of injustice on either side, you know, tit for tat sort of motivations uh, where you're thinking about all the all the harms that the other side has done. Um, and there's, you know, things like genocides, suicide, terrorism, those things, you know, really do rely on on moral convictions um, for people to carry out these kind of heinous acts. So so when I give examples like that, I think people kind of get it like, oh, yeah, OK, so there is at this broad level, there could be a dark side to like moral convictions. But I think even, you know, in everyday life, uh, you know, think of like conflicts in relationships, you know, like any fight you have with your spouse, you're both really focused on like fairness, like, oh, well, there's something that's not fair. And, and the more I think about it, the more sure I am, I think, you know, um, that, you know, we, that's, that's where things become intractable, um, you know, political polarization, certainly that, you know, tons of moral convictions on either side, that their side is the morally good side, and the other side is, is evil. Um, so I think a, I, you know, a kind of moral humility is is needed. Um, I think moral certainty feels really good and it feels really right, and I think that's part of our nature. But I kind of think moral certainty does more bad than good. Um, and so I, you know, I would I would just urge people to you know don't assume that your moral convictions are uh, the most Im important thing. And don't assume that you're right, you know, be open to to being wrong about things um, and be morally humble. You know, it just reminds me of something Al Capone said, uh, you know, he was just trying to provide the nicer pleasures to people. You know, that, that was his goal, you know, and, and right. uh, I, I just I think these examples and especially coming from you who, you know, developed the moral foundation scale or helped identify these moral foundations. Uh, I just appreciate this lesson of trying to approach things from a place of humility, because all of these conflicts you mentioned, uh, both sides are are pretty well convinced that they're the you know the moral actors. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I know you're very busy. I appreciate you sharing these awesome lessons uh, with me today. I'm going to share them with my kids and my students, <laughs> and uh, try to think about these, return to these regularly. Uh, I, I just appreciate you sharing your time and thoughts today. So thanks so much for coming on, Jesse. Thanks so much. Yeah. Tell your kids and students to stop being so moral. <laughs> yeah, that'll go on my tombstone. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thanks, right. Nate. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. Jesse Graham is one of the most impactful researchers of our day, and I love the lessons he shared today. First, use a calendar. By scheduling blocks of time, Jesse became more productive and learned to accurately estimate how long it took to complete specific tasks. And it was also during this productive period that he developed with Jonathan Haidt Moral Foundations Theory, one of the most well-known impactful theories on morality today. Second, be a good collaborator. By trying to show everyone else how smart you are, people aren't going to want to work with you. But if people do want to work with you, it will be good for your career. When describing this lesson, Jesse mentioned briefly the paper in which he was 54th author. But what he didn't mention was that this paper may be one of the most important psychology papers published in the last several decades, and led to what has been called the replication crisis, which I discuss in Season 1, Episode 14 of this podcast. And finally, question your convictions. 
Jesse's research on moral foundations shows that all too often people who argue, fight, or even go to war with each other ground their beliefs in morality. Some people focus on whether their action is fair or harmful to others, while others focus on whether their action is loyal or respects authority. By focusing on different moral foundations, people can vehemently disagree, all the while feeling they are morally superior. For this reason, it's important that we question our own convictions. As Jesse said, moral humility is needed. We should all be open to being wrong about things. Jesse Graham is one of the most accomplished researchers of our day, but to meet him, speak with him, or work with him, you would never know it, because he's a walking, talking example of the lessons he shared today. Use a calendar and be humble. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with two quick requests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others who may enjoy it. And if you'd be willing to give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thank you for all of your support.